It's Ram season, which means it's time to serve with Ram 1500, Ram 3500, and Ram TRX. Hurry in now for great deals on the trucks that are built to serve. Right now during Ram season, get 10% below MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Ram 1500 Laramie. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. Contact dealer for details. Take retail delivery by 531-23. When your child are killed and you're charged with it, that juror wants to hear you say you didn't do it. There's probably a reason why she didn't get up there and say she didn't do it. Welcome to the global phenomenon, surviving the survivor, where we're all just trying to survive in a rough world. What's up, SDS Nation, and welcome to another episode of Surviving the Survivor, the podcast that promises to bring you the very best guests in true crime. We had so much fun last night with uh, two investigators. I brought back uh, two more tonight to mix things up, and uh, both amazing guys. Uh, We'll get to both of them, and the third one's not bad either. You know him, Tim Jansen with the great hair. Someone thought it was a toupee today, he just told me, but no, that is in fact Tim Jansen's real hair. It is week six of the Lori Vallow Daybell trial, and it could be the final week. That's because today both the state and defense each rested uh, their cases, and closing arguments are now expected Thursday. Uh, there will be a break in court tomorrow. Uh, Tim, those judges never seem to work too much, so they're taking a little. Uh, a little break tomorrow, uh, and they will be back in court for closings again on Thursday. This is being uh, filmed on Tuesday. So, of course, it is the trial of the so-called doomsday mom, the wildly twisted story of a seemingly loving mother, a self-proclaimed devout member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, who clearly veered way, way, way off course and became involved in the deaths of as many as five people, including her own children. Uh, the man with the mahogany is famed Tallahassee defense attorney R. Timothy Jansen. He is a partner in the law firm that bears his name, Jansen and Davis. He has handled every sort of uh, complex civil, administrative, and criminal case you can imagine. He was also a prosecutor for five years at the federal level uh, prior to uh, beginning his own firm and going into private practice. The man with the American flag uh, pocket square, which I love. He is a graduate of the Federal Law Enforcement and United States Secret Service Academies. He is Jim Rathman. He traveled the world protecting President Barack Obama and family, as well as Vice President Joe Biden and numerous other presidents and prime ministers from around the globe. Prior to the U.S. Secret Service, Jim graduated from Louisiana State University where he had a storied football career. Um, And before that, he worked as a detective for the Livingston Parish, Louisiana Sheriff's Office. Uh, He is a decorated collegiate athlete and a soldier, quite the resume. And then we've got the man, Peter Massey, with the shaved head, started his career at the Hamden, Connecticut Department of Police Services, rising to the rank of detective, He retired in July 2003 after more than 20 years, and he's currently a professor of instruction at the University of South Florida at St. Petersburg. Um, Please follow us on Facebook, Insta, Twitter. We put out showtimes and all the info at Podcast STS. You can also listen to us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Patreon, YouTube members are welcome. Please support us. The merch store is open. People are all uh, ordering their coffee mugs. 
and we're going to have a YouTube and Patreon member uh, program with Carm, the one and only who's behind me tonight on May 18th. Without further ado, Tim Jansen, high drama today. The state rested uh, around one something local time in Idaho. Uh, after they rested, uh, shortly thereafter, the defense said, we have no defense. Uh, you're the attorney on the panel. Uh, what does that mean? Does that mean the defense has not been doing its homework for the last six weeks, or are they just, uh, there's no way to, def to defend the indefensible? Well, they did a Rule 29, which they have to do. It's a judgment of acquittal, meaning that the state has rested and they don't have sufficient evidence. And those motions are mostly denied sum summarily. You have to make it if you put put cases evidence onto after your case, but they didn't put any evidence on. So they did the perfunctory rule 29. Uh, and then they took a break to talk to their client and let the client let her know that it's her decision if she wants to testify. Ultimately, the lawyers probably told her not to, but they still have to have that conversation. Normally, the judge would bring that defendant in the courtroom without the jury and make her put on the record that it's her decision if she wants to testify. And if she doesn't want to testify, that's her right also. They want to make sure she can't come back and lay, later claim ineffective counsel. Um, could it be a PP defense, potted plant defense, where the lawyers just don't really do much, and then argue in closing, well, you don't have enough evidence to argue the law. They probably can't argue the facts. The facts are pretty strong with that, that the tape with their uh, fibers on there. So it's going to be curious. I don't really know what the defense is. Um, they'll probably do a shotgun approach. They'll throw a bunch up there, a, lunch, a bunch, and then they'll talk about reasonable doubt. Um, and they, don't, they can't say they called any witnesses, um, and they didn't put their defendant on the stand. So jurors are not supposed to consider that. They do it all the time. They do consider it. They just won't admit it to it. Um, but, you know, when your child are killed and you're charged with it, that juror wants to hear you say you didn't do it. <laughs> There's probably a reason why she didn't get up there and say she didn't do it. So that's Tim, my take. More, more than one person asked me this. Uh, when the defense asked to speak to uh, their client, everyone had to leave the courtroom. Why don't they just go into a room? Is there a, is there a, a reason behind that? Is there a legal reason behind that? Do they have to keep the defendant uh, or maybe a security reason. I don't know. Uh, that's question number one. And uh, mm -hmm. question number two, do you think do you think she pushed at all to uh, to testify on on her own behalf? That sound like she pushed. I think it's a security measure. Uh, they do all they can to for security, especially at the end of a trial, someone looking at life in prison. Why not just clear the courtroom, let them have it so no one can eavesdrop. The media can't hear them talking to their client. Um, they must have made that decision. Maybe the sheriffs said it would be easier for the people to leave than to move her to a room where they may not have had a room that they felt was secure. But I doubt she wanted to testify. I doubt it. Yeah. And so there was this uh, Rule 29 uh, that the defense uh, uh, put into motion today. It is the, uh, it's a motion for judgment of acquittal. Uh, as Tim said, it's kind of SOP, Standard Operating Procedure. It was obviously denied by Judge Boyce. Uh, Jim, uh, your thoughts on uh, no defense by the defense, by the way, Shivani. Well, that was some kind of defense. What do you guys say? We'll let uh, Jim answer this. Uh, Jim, your thoughts um, on it. 
Well, I really don't know what defense she thinks she has. Uh, you know, I wouldn't. I mean, I don't think she's going to testify. I don't think it would be smart for her to testify. Uh, you know, there's a lot of problems with their story overall. I mean, you know, who doesn't report their kids when they're missing for a while? Who goes ahead and says that your autistic child of seven years old is staying with a family in Arizona when you know that's not to be true? That eventually came to light. You know, you have, uh, you know, the the cell phone uh, records putting uh, her brother, Alex Cox, in the backyard of Chad Daybell, where they happened to find the human remains of both Tylee and JJ. You know, there's a lot of things that go into this that, you know, I don't really see how they could have a defense for it. What are you going to say? Um, you know, you have the text messages that they exchanged amongst each other. You have the text message of Chad sending to Tammy uh, about, um, you know, the story about the, the raccoon or whatever it was that he killed and had to bury in the pet cemetery. Lo and behold, that's exactly where they find Tylee at the same time. So uh, I don't know what type of defense they think they would have in this case, but uh, I'm not at all worried about their uh, not being a guilty verdict. Uh, Peter Massey, um, to you, uh, you were an investigator for many years. Did you ever come close to a case this bizarre? And what's kind of your uh, bird's eye view of uh, everything that we learned about over the last six weeks? Well, I'm not so sure most investigators have heard of a case that is as outlandish or as out of this earth um, as this one is. Um you know, going, can we go back to the, the defense thing? I, it seems like their take is no defense is a great defense. Um, this is one of those things that I think anytime they open their mouth, they're going to put their foot in it because, as Jim said, there is way, way too much physical evidence, circumstantial evidence um, going forward to not look at this. Um, from a craziness standpoint, oh, my goodness. You know, how do you deal with people that are really not even of this earth, if you think about it? Some of the comments that are being made um, as far as the zombies and, and things like that. And, hey, we've had the Twinkie defense. Maybe this would be the zombie defense. That's a good point. That's a good point. Uh, Jen Berry, hi from Idaho, where this is all taking place, along with uh, Brian Koberger, who is scheduled right now for a preliminary hearing uh, at the end of June. Uh, Lisa writes, um, hello, SDS Nation and best guests. What's going on with the trial being held under the incorrect code? Could there be an acquittal? I think what she's talking about, Tim. Uh, so there was a, a bit of a hubbub, if I may use that mm -hmm. word, uh, toward the end of the day where uh, the state wanted to amend some clerical errors with the uh, with the indictment. Uh, the prosecutor says that Lori was charged with grand theft by deception and argues that there was an error in the indictment with the lettering. So it says grand theft with the intent to deprive another rather than deception. Um, Jim Archibald popped in at that point, the defense attorney, and said that this is a big deal uh, and that this error could, quote unquote, be fatal. And then Boyce admonished the state and said um, this sort of uh, the timing on this is sort of unbelievable, uh, saying for the number of prosecutors who have worked this case for so long. What's going on here? Is this? Atypical, typical, but they obviously wanted to amend the indictment and the judge was pissed uh, and brief. Not atypical. A smart lawyer, defense lawyer, sees the problem with the charging document. He's got no obligation to fix it for the government. Let the state do what they got to do. 
And then usually when they get down to jury instructions and the defense lawyer says, no, no, that's not how it's charged. then the state says, oh, no, that's not what we meant. We want to amend it. Um, and it, it puts the judge in a really bad position because does the judge allow them to amend the charging document? Is it, a, is it a unfair to the defense? Well, the defense really didn't call any witnesses. The defense didn't put up witnesses to say they were defending against this theory, not that theory. So normally the judge will allow it if the judge still thinks that the trial was done, the evidence was there. You can argue. We're talking about jury instructions now. Um, one thing I want to add, um, Joel, is that because they didn't put her on the witness stand, they still have an appellate issue on sufficiency of the evidence. If she would, they would have put Lori on the witness stand and she testified, you no longer have sufficiency because a conviction can be based on credibility alone. Now, I don't know if this defense team was thinking of that, but that is one issue by not calling her. That could be an appellate issue. They've argued in the Rule 29 that we didn't, they didn't sufficiently prove the case. Well, I think they're going to find that the 12 jurors are going to say they did. But I think the judge, I, I didn't see it. Did the judge allow them to make the amendment? I, they normally do. Uh, yeah, um, I, believe, I believe Boyce did, yes. I had a federal trial, and it was possession of firearm by a convicted felon. And normally the a case agent sits at the table, and the case agent helps the lawyer make sure she gets all the exhibits in. And so, the, and so she finally called the last witness was the, was the, marsh, was the ATF agent. And she forgot to put in the gun, right? She never in, introduced it, all right? I just stayed there, waited, didn't say anything, and I said no questions. So then right before you go back to the jury, the judge goes, okay, you two make sure the right evidence is going back. And I said, okay, judge, well, that's not going back. And she goes, what do you mean? I said, well, it, well, it was identified, but it was never introduced. And the clerk says, no, it was never introduced. And the prosecutor begged and and then she, this is after closing our, and the judge let her reopen and introduce the gun. Mm. So things happen. Yep. Uh, they always say to expect the unexpected in a trial. Uh, Stephanie Ella here, Jim, do we think that this trial is going to wrap up this week? Well, they obviously rested today, uh, followed here by, uh, that's what people are thinking. I've heard followed by Tammy. Uh, closing statements Thursday, jury instructions, and then jury deliberations. Do you think we might have a verdict on Thursday or Friday? Uh, Jim, uh, Tim just said uh, things happen. We In Casey Anthony's case, no one expected uh, an acquittal. Uh, how long does this jury deliberate, in your opinion? Is it an open and shut case right now? Well, my personal belief is that it's an open and shut case. However, um, you know, will this case wrap up this week? I think it has a good chance to, but I'm not really sure. I mean, the defense could come out tomorrow with a little bit something else. Um, but, you know, when you when you compare this with the Casey Anthony case, I, when, I think when you go back and you look at the Casey Anthony case, the prosecution overcharged. You know, if they went with a second-degree murder instead of a first-degree murder in the capital case, um, I think they would have had enough there to convict her. But I think there, the problem was that they were trying to find enough to convict her on what she was charged with. And I think that was the issue with Casey Anthony on this one. I think they've got it right. Um, you know, mistakes happen when it comes to, you know, what, what was discovered earlier and they had to, you know, the judge had a rule on it. 
Um, things do happen, but Tim is right. You know, it's not up to the defense attorney to fix that. That's that's, that's your problem. Um, that's the state's problem. They got to fix it. So uh, I, I think this has a good chance this week. I, I think they're going to get a guilty verdict. Um, if it goes to the jury deliberation. I don't think it's going to take long at all. A couple hours, maybe. That's yeah. just my belief. And uh, just to refresh everyone's memory, Alec Murdoch was two and a half hours, but the jurors basically said they had their minds made up uh, when they walked in there. Uh, I'm personally thinking, and what I think doesn't matter, but it's going to be over uh, very quickly um, unless there is some crazy out of left field surprise here. Um, Pete, to you, um, the judge also uh, ruled on something today that was interesting uh, because there's been... uh, the, the accusation that um, there hasn't been enough transparency. Uh, people came down on this judge early on for it, uh, but he did rule today that they're going to live stream the verdict. I think everyone freaked out because they thought the verdict was coming in that instant. But um, when they do reach a verdict, it will be live streamed. Uh, is this the right decision in your opinion? I think so. Once it gets to this point, the, the circus atmosphere, you know, the decisions are already made, so whatever circus atmosphere there may be is pretty much done. So I don't see any issues with having the media come in and broadcast live, either by video or by audio, a decision that comes down. Again, I kind of agree with uh, with Jim that um, and Tim that it's going to be very soon, very quick. And uh, I'm not sure why... Judges can't really write or speak in English, but this is what Boy said regarding the uh, the video. He says, as an alternative to rescinding the order and upon consideration that much of the rationale for removing visual coverage is absolved upon the conclusion of the presentation of evidence and closing arguments in this case, the court will broadcast through its official YouTube channel using the court's own media devices, visual and audio coverage of the verdict. Uh, stage of the case basically saying exactly what peter just said is that the circus uh atmosphere the circus aspect of this is now over uh this is the end uh jim we've had we've debated this on our show before do you think in general um courts need to be more transparent new york state for example uh new york city i know uh does not allow uh cameras in the courtroom it's 2023 uh is a time that the public is allowed to see what is going on inside every courtroom? That's actually a really good question. I I don't know if the times necessarily make the change in that. I think that's really up to how the judge really wants his courtroom to be. Does he want his courtroom to be a circus? Does he want it to be televised and under scrutiny? Does he want to be able to maintain and hold and have that court of law go through the proper proceedings without any distractions? And maybe that's the judge is making that decision based on what they want the jury to be able to, you know, to see or hear or, uh, you know, be involved with. So it's really a, probably a better question for Tim to answer, being that this is his role is to be inside that courtroom every day. He could probably answer that a little bit better. For me, in the law enforcement side of it, it doesn't matter to me if TV's in there or not. Our job is to present the evidence that we have to our, prosecution, our prosecutors and let them go forward with our case. Well. Tim, Jim, uh, through the alley-oop here, um, what yeah. about the fact that the boy, boys has now relented? He's going to uh, allow us to see the verdict. But, uh, I mean, even beyond that, should we, be, uh, should we, the public, be allowed to see what is happening inside these courtrooms? 
Well, of course, we should see what's going on, but at least the judge was consistent. His original opinion was he didn't want to create a circus. So now, like, the circus is over. Jury's going to render a verdict. No judge wants to be Judge Ito. And that was the case where no one wants to be another Judge Ito and be seen as the clown in the courtroom he's being run by these lawyers who's lounging back in that fancy chair he bought, uh, had no control of the courtroom. The trial took forever. And so no judge wants that. And the Murdoch trial, that judge ran it perfectly well. He was great judge. Um, and I think he's got it right. He should let the verdict be seen. There's no contamination now by a verdict. Uh, no, no witness is going to tailor their testimony after that. It's basically... Now, the question is, make sure the juror's face is on on TV if there's questions. If there's questions, will he allow those on live TV? Um, but it looks like he just said the verdict. Yeah, just a verdict. Uh, Lori, Laura Waldy, hi, Joel, best guest in SCS Nation. Happy Tuesday from Toronto. Uh, Chad's text to Lori, grab me by the storm, has put me off my dinner tonight. We will get to the storm. <laughs> The storm brouhaha, uh, the storm heard around the world. We will get to that in a little bit. Um, Tim, this is an interesting question. You are the uh, sole attorney, so you'll be taking a brunt of some of these. But uh, Sarah, uh, watching us from, I believe, Nashville, who could the defense possibly call aside from Lori? I mean, who could they have called uh, if Lori, obviously, they didn't want her taking the stand and it looks like she's not? Um, anyone? They could have called the... Um Medical examiner that said it was death from natural causes, um, have that person testify and prop that person up and make her look like she undermines the state's case by she saying it was natural causes and didn't require an autopsy. I mean, I don't know who else she would call. With, Go ahead. Now, you know, I, I know that there was a time that she spent um, locked up trying to get sane or understand what's coming for trial. Um, but wouldn't you want to put a, a, a psychiatrist or psychologist on, uh, Jim, to, uh, or Tim, to um, uh, show that she's not of right mind? Well, they don't have that defense in Idaho. You yeah, there's no, you can't, there's no defense of mental insanity at, in Idaho. And you're it. That's it. You're done. In Florida, yeah. they could have. In Florida, yeah. you could have. Mm -hmm. yeah. You could have asked uh, an NGI not guilty by reason of insanity. And I've done that. You, it, and it usually do it without a judge. Usually a judge. You, if you've got a pretty good case where it is going to be uh, insane, the prosecution usually says, let's just do a judge trial. Right. And you go through the formality of calling your expert. And the state doesn't have an expert. And they find an NGI. And then they tailor a conditional release. That's appropriate. Yeah. If without it being existing, all you would have would be medical examiner or maybe some sort of forensic evidence right. person to say that the interpretation is wrong. Right. Uh, so er earlier in the day, there was um, streaming through Twitter where all these rumors that she was going to take the stand. Um, Tim, does it seem like in every high profile case, uh, especially with social media now, that there's this anticipation that the you know, the, the defendant is going to do this. And then it, a lot of times it turns out not to be the case. Um, but is that kind of like a fake out that we see often in the courtroom in high profile cases? You do see that um, quite a bit. And I did it one time on a prosecutor, but 
it's really an ultimate decision. Your client, and let, if you have control of your client, he's asking you, what do you think? What do you think? Do we have a shot? Do we have a shot? Do you need me? Or you might say, we have this element. No one's test. The only person that can give us this element is you. Subject to cross-examination and all these other issues. Is it worth it? And that's what you've got your client in you, weighing it, and you're writing a piece of paper and have them sign off that it's a trial decision. Uh, and sometimes it's really a hard decision. And I, I put people on the stand that I later regretted. Um, and sometimes you put your client on the stand and they they sell the case. Um, but every case is so different. I don't think she could have helped herself in this case at all by taking the witness stand. It would have been a complete circus. Um, so, no, um, it's not easy decision. But you you pretty much know. When you pick a jury, if your client's going to testify, um, and you got to prepare them for testifying, you know, so it goes quickly. When you've done cross examination, defense call your first witness, and if the only witness is your client, you better be ready. George saying, "What's up, STS fam? Uh, I heard no court tomorrow uh, from Mr. St. John. That is correct. No court uh, tomorrow, uh, Jim." You were a police officer before you were a Secret Service agent and uh, a very adept investigator. Um, just to put yourself in those investigators' shoes in Rexburg, Idaho, the day they come across these two bodies of these two young children, you know that that's going to be a big, high-profile case. Uh, you don't know the extent of it yet um, with the zombies and all this other nonsense. But um, what kind of pressure does it put on investigators uh, when you do discover those bodies? Um, you know, it might not be talked about necessarily, but do you step up your game? Uh, how do things change knowing you're about to embark on something that is going to be uh, very important to the public? Yeah, I mean, they they knew this case was going to be high profile. It was already getting to that point before they were discovered, you know. But I, I will tell you, in speaking with most detectives, I'm sure Pete over here will, will, will agree to this. Most detectives do the job. They do the job thoroughly because they love what they're doing, but they want to be able to speak for their victims. They want to be able to bring this person to justice, bring closure to that family. Um, you know, and those are the things that motivate them. I've known detectives before that'll keep a picture of the victim, of the person they're fighting for so much that deceased person, they'll keep that picture on their desk. They'll put it in their car, whatever the case is. And they look at it every day as this is the reason why I'm doing exactly what I'm doing right now. And it motivates them to work that much harder. Look in those places that others aren't. Think outside the box and put the pieces together so you can bring whoever did this to justice and bring that family the proper closure. So whether the the, the TV cameras are on or not, they're going to work just as hard and just, just as diligent to make sure that they get that job done effectively. And they give everything the prosecutors need to put that person behind bars for life. Tali in Israel, I really wish we get to see the Koberger trial live. You may or may not get your wish, but... Uh... Leaning towards you not getting your wish at that point, uh, Pete. I like cop stories. What was uh, your most high-profile case in your twenty-year career? And same question, I uh, just asked Jim. I mean, what is the added pressure like when you are involved in a high-profile case? But first, we love Tim and his hair from Flyover Girl. Uh, so, Pete, you're uh, can't say that about you, Pete. I'm sorry. No, I know that. I know that. I'm sorry. Um, Long time ago, maybe. Um, my most, well, I'm trying to think of the most high-profile case I've done. Um, certainly nothing along 
secret service lines. But, um, you know, when any time that there's a, a, a child involved, you know, it pulls at anybody's, it, it should pull at your, your heart um, strings because, you know, they're defenseless and absolutely innocent. So, yeah, we work really hard all the time, but you kick into that sixth or seventh gear when it's a child. Um, my most high-profile case. Um, we had, um, there was a, a gentleman who was found murdered in our town who was a actor in The Godfather. Yeah. So that was our, our big claim to fame. Um, but, you know, look, every case is important for those people who are involved. And to say that, you know, you're going to work harder on a high profile case versus not, understanding, again, everybody, for that, for that moment, everybody, it's important to. So, um, yeah. Um, Tim, to you, um, I believe there was um, 62 or 63 witnesses in all called by the uh, state. Sometimes, Tim, there's a fear of uh, what they call prosecutorial overkill. There were reports yesterday that the jurors looked a little antsy. Um, it's unclear if it was because of these storms uh, about the storm, which we'll get to, or if they were just uh, if they were just uh, getting antsy. But um, what's your take on the uh, state's presentation here? Was it effective? Was it um, did they do it in the right amount of time? Did they call the right amount of witnesses uh, without you know without crossing that line of prosecutorial overkill? Well, you know they thought the Murdoch prosecutor overkilled with some of the stuff he did. But uh, I can tell you, investigators do not change their, they do their job, they do it well. I can tell you the lawyers, though, act differently on high profile cases, prosecutors and defense lawyers, because it can make or break a career for a defense lawyer. And for a prosecutor, it can make or break their ascension up to maybe become a judge, especially if they lose a high profile case by doing something so erroneous that was inappropriate or incompetent. Um, I don't think they overkilled it. I mean, this is a serious case. You got three dead people. You have children that were brutalized uh, and killed and buried. Um, I don't think you can over over try this case. I thought they wrapped it up nicely at the end with the, with the, the fiber stuff. Um, and you put agents on the stand who are experienced. They know how to testify. They read some of those texts and stuff. And they're they're professionals, and they and I think they closed the book really pretty well. Um, you don't want to put a lay witness on there at the end. Um, finishing with the agent is usually pretty strong. Yeah, good. Uh, Carrie G, STS, I can't quit you. I've had a few people say they're addicted, and I say it's a much better option than crack cocaine. You just have to ask <laughs> Jim Rathman, who is law enforcement officer, or Peter Massey. They will tell you the same. So. Uh, Stick with this addiction. It is healthier. Um, Jim, the flip side of that, too, uh, you were, um, you know, called as an expert witness um, as an investigator. Uh, what's it like in a high profile case to be called uh, to the witness stand to offer testimony? Well, you know, you have to really know your case inside and out. You have to know exactly why you did what it is that you did, how you collected it, why you collected it that way. 
uh, and be ready for any question. So being prepared is probably the number one thing. And I know a lot of the investigators and detectives will meticulously read over their notes before taking the stand uh, in any type of case, especially a high profile case, because the last thing you want to do is say something that's untrue or have uh, said some not knowing exactly why you did this, which could have appear to be some sort of violation or collected improperly or something like that. So you don't want to give any type of ammunition to the defense attorney to eat you alive with on that stand, because I'm, I'm, I can assure you, if you make that mistake, they will eat you up. So that's one of the things that a lot of investigators, expert witnesses, detectives, and so on is that we, you know, we, we really study those notes and we know exactly why we did what we did and when it, how everything that went about it. And Jim, I'm curious, um, when you were doing your uh, Secret Service work, um, I assume there were points where you were uh, in protection of the children as well. Uh, do you mm -hmm. ramp things up um, to, to Pete's point that as an investigator, it's really difficult to see um, murdered children. Um, but when you're doing that, uh, the work of the, the Secret Service does, do you guys, I don't know, do, do you amp up your efforts? Do your antennas go up higher when you're watching the children? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, look, a lot of those out there have children ourselves. So, it, you know, you would want somebody, a detective, a Secret Service person, somebody providing to whatever the case might be. You want them to do the best job possible for your child. So why wouldn't you do the same thing for them? And you never want to see a killed child, injured child, anything like that at all. So we work twice as hard three times as hard when it comes to a child. Um, that's just something that sticks with you. You know, one of the worst things uh, that I experienced was having to deal with the grieving families from Sandy Hook. Uh, when that happened, um, I went up there with the Secret Service immediately following that, um, you know, not, not to work the scene or anything like that, but to specifically uh, be there to put the families in a specific area so the president could come in and, and you know, just to see uh, the emotions and everything that they were going through, the trauma, and, you know, hearing what happened inside the school, uh, it scars you. It scars you completely. And that that was extremely painful to deal with at that time. And uh, I remember that I was uh, working for Fox 5 in New York City. And uh, not long after, a couple of weeks after, President Obama spoke in Connecticut. And I remember covering that event. I don't know if this, it's the same event, but uh, that was uh, definitely one of the darkest reporting days uh, covering Sandy Hook, which was in your state, Pete. Uh, Papa Bear says hello from Moscow, Idaho. Obviously, a play, place that's near and dear to our hearts. I was going to ask you the same. Pete, feel free to add on to that. But I was going to ask you the same question: uh, when you would go to uh, testify um, as law enforcement, um, how did you prepare for that? Obviously, you are going to review all your reports. But if you're testifying in a criminal case as a law enforcement officer, then you're going to have to sit down with the prosecutor and try to get some information from the prosecutor as to what would be the line of questioning that they want to um, attack. Is there specific items that they want to address bullet point by bullet point? In a civil trial, again, you do the same thing. Possibly speak to whoever is hiring you to review what they want to cover. Um, but it's it, it, preparation, you know, we, we've all had lives outside of our careers and we've all hopefully prepared for whatever that event was. This is no different. You're going to prepare 
just like you would for any other thing. So studying, reading, listening to the questions, um, taking a moment before you answer. All of these things are important when one is going to testify. Um, I, I, I just you mentioned Murdoch. I think at one point, if I remember correctly, Murdoch was admonished because what he would do, in, and you know, Jim, you can chime in that we're trained to look at the attorney and then turn and speak to the jury, mm-hmm. and that's exactly what Murdoch did over and over again until he got admonished. So, you know, again, you have to behave, listen, learn, think. Do all of these things um, and prep for your testimony. Uh, Tim, to you, that's interesting. You're you're prepped to which way to turn and to look and all of that. Um, Tim, have you had law enforcement who come on that are ill prepared? And as Jim said, do you just uh, tear them apart if that's the case? Well, a lot. That's the thing about cross examination. You have a police report, so that's your bible. You're waiting to attack. You're waiting for a mistake. You're waiting for a conflict between two witnesses. Now, the police have gotten smart. Used to be everybody on scene did a police report. Now, only one guy does a police report, and the other does supplements. So it's hard to cross-examine them. Um, I did have a case one time uh, where the case agent had a baby, and he was out. And the other agent said that my client took responsibility for all the cocaine in the house and went in and showed him the cocaine. The agent that was on leave came in and testified. And I said, well, did you take my client back in? And did he confess? Oh, no, no. He never went back in. So he never was shown the cocaine and then said, I take responsibility. Oh, no, we never let him back in the house. We left him in the car. I got a not guilty on that case. I mean, because they they were in conflict. And, And I, trust me. And when he said it, I turned and looked at the agent sitting at the table, looked at the jury. I paused. I let it sink in before I asked any more questions. And then I looked at the judge and said, no further questions, Your Honor. And it, it was silence in the room. Tim Jansen, he needs cameras in that courtroom. This guy is, uh, <laughs> is awesome at what he does. Uh, Bobby Henson, I love this comment. We all know that Chad's manhood is more like intermittent Sprinkle <laughs> and a storm. Uh, if That's you guys good. don't know about the storm, you're about to find out. So buckle up. Um, Adam Bluefire, hi, true crime king Joel. Thank you. Please tell my wife that immediately. Please, esteemed panel and STS fam from Barcelona, Spain. And look at this. I am a Patreon member now. Uh, YouTube next. Love it. Appreciate the support. Thank you so much. And most important, real uh, thanks and gratitude, Stephanie Ella. Thank you for your service, Jim. I am a Navy vet, so thank you for your service as well. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Stephanie, and all the vets out there. Yeah, thank you. And that's another show we have to do because too many mm-hmm. vets are dying of suicide still, and uh, we'll bring Jim yes, back indeed. on to do a show on that. Something has got to be done about that. Um, Please do. Was, yeah, Jim, there was, a, um, there was a moment of levity today. So Larry Woodcock, uh, who is Kay Woodcock's husband, the grandparents, uh, JJ, that have been there um, pretty much throughout the entire entire trial. Um, someone's phone went off in the courtroom, which has happened before, and the bailiffs got annoyed, as they do. And uh, Larry Woodcock said, someone's phone went off. I'm going to take it. And everyone in the courtroom burst out laughing. Um, 
what is going on through these um, victims, extended victims, the families, um, six weeks into a trial? It's got to be just, you know, unbelievable heartache, tension, stress, all pent up. And obviously he was trying to make a joke today at a time where we've seen him crying a lot in the courtroom. But what do you think, yeah. um, you know, you've had to placate victims, talk to them, um, calm them down. What do you think they're going through right now? Well, they're going through an awful lot. I mean, every day the trial goes on. Every day they have to relive the events, the events that they know. They've got to relive the memory. You know, they have. They want to remember their loved ones in the highest regard, not with how they were murdered or anything like that. So, you know, the victims' families are. are it's extremely stressful, very emotionally draining. And I'm sure six weeks into this, they're ready for it to be done. They want that verdict. They want that guilty. That's that closure they need, so they can start moving forward with the next steps in their lives. And uh, we'll get into some of the uh, testimony from the final day of testimony today. Um, but Pete, kind of a similar question, same thing. The jurors today uh, was reported, you know, six weeks ago, they didn't know each other. Um, they were sitting there quietly. Today, they were laughing with each other, talking to each other like they're best of friends. Um, I know you're not the attorney on this panel, but you've been in courtrooms plenty of times. What do you think uh, happens to a jury pool uh, six weeks into a trial? I assume they start to really get to, you know, know each other. They're not allowed to talk about the case, so they're talking to each other about their kids' baseball game or whatever, right? I mean, so what do you think the camaraderie is like after this amount of time? It's either going to be one of two things. They're either going to be a very unified body or it's going to be very fractionated or possibly a fractionated person out there, that, that outlier. Um, but, you know, anytime, you know, you spend six weeks more time there than with your own family, you're going to become friendlier with these people. You're going to develop a relationship with these people. Um, it wouldn't surprise me to see these people bond down the road five, 10, 20 years from now. Um, that's what happens when you're in this kind of a situation. That said, if we have that outlier in there, then it's going to be heck in that jury room when it comes time to deliberate. Uh, Tim, for you, Sidney Solomon, uh, if this trial happens to end in a mistrial, uh, which it's a little late for that to happen, mm -hmm. I think, could Chad and Lori's second trial be combined in the future? I think if there was a hung jury, maybe uh, is a better chance of this happening. Uh, could they be unsevered? Uh, moving forward or no, because Chad's got to be tried alone anyway, right? I think there's a good possibility. Um, he, She asked for a speedy trial. They had a discovery violation that was turned over late. Some, I think it was DNA maybe. Uh, if they do a retrial, unless there's a Bruton problem where you have statements coming in that are problematic, they normally try them together, especially if there's a conspiracy charge. Almost always are tried together. And I think the judge probably would retry them together, but I really don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> mm. I think the trial is going to resolve. I think you have a, a, a verdict before the end of Friday. Yeah, I would uh, tend to agree with you. Um, Bobby says, I predict guilty, Tim, on all conspiracy charges, acquittal on murder, then on to Arizona where she will get nailed for Charles Vallow. Uh, what do you make of uh, Bobby's comment? Do you agree? Uh, conspiracy is always easy to charge. All you got to prove is an agreement and an overt act and any steps that were taken to, but murder, I think people underestimate circumstantial evidence. And 
non-lawyers don't understand circumstantial evidence. And I, I think every time I've been on this show, I try to tell you, Joel, circumstantial evidence cases can be stronger than direct evidence cases. And circumstantial evidence cases, you know, really can be strong. Um, and I think that's where this person's thinking, well, you didn't have a you didn't have a direct evidence. You didn't have a witness say she did it. You didn't see any blood on her. You don't need that. And I, I still think jury instructions, once they're read, she's not going to get a benefit of any doubt. They find her guilty of conspiracy. They're more than likely going to find her guilty of, of murder also. Uh, Mar Marina, our friend who is in the south of Spain watching the most, uh, Jim, this one's for you. The most incriminating evidence is Lori's behavior, considering her children were dead uh, and she didn't really exhibit any concern. Uh, all caps done. You, uh, your job, um, you had to stand either in front or behind that rope line and watch human behavior, make sure, uh, uh, you know, no one was up to any shenanigans. What does her behavior, and by the way, today she was laughing in the courtroom um, on a day where we're hearing <laughs> incriminating testimony once again. What do you make of her whack, wacko behavior? You know, that's actually a really good question. Um, I do think if she was in a different state, she could probably try the mental insanity option. Um, I don't think she's all there, obviously. Uh, I mean, when you go on all those months, you're lying to people about where your children are. You know that they're dead. You have no feelings. You have no remorse. You have nothing. Like you are literally just numb and a sociopath and whatever other words we want to come up with are uh, that kind of fits her to a T, but that's also going to show into the prosecution's hand. And like, you, you knew what was going on. You had no remorse about anything. And, you know, they're going to hammer down on that. That absolutely shows, in my opinion, I believe that that shows, um, you know, just her level of involvement and in everything that she did. She helped plan all this. And that's, it's, it's a strong piece of evidence, in my opinion. Jim, I'm like a little kid in a candy store. Uh, maybe you should not come see me because I'll ask you a lot of Dumb questions I'm about to ask you, but when you were working Secret Service and you've got that head of yours uh, shaved or cut tight and you've got your sunglasses on and your earpiece in, what are you trained? What are you looking for in that crowd? Uh, what is the number one thing you are looking for? Well, there's a lot of things we're looking for, right? You're trying to find that, you know, you kind of get that gut instinct of the person that doesn't fit. But reality is, we you know, a lot of the times we're looking at hands. Um, you can't you can't do anything if 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 your hands are visible and I can see your hands and you're not making any funny movements and grabbing things that you shouldn't be grabbing. Um, so a lot of times I do, you're constantly scanning hands, you're scanning everywhere for what doesn't fit. Um, but you, it's hard to shoot a firearm without, you know, using your hands. So that's a lot of times what we're looking at. And I, I just, you know, for me, I can just see thousands upon thousands of hands all the time. Did you ever have you ever have a scare while you were working where you thought someone was going in? Uh, to grab something that maybe they weren't? Um, not so much. I mean, we do a pretty, believe it or not, at least with my experiences, with a lot of the times with the crowds, they, they listen, you know, we'll go out there and tell them like, listen, the president's going to be out here in a few minutes. All I ask is like, if you want to take pictures with your phone, that's totally fine. However, keep your hands out where we can, don't, you know, reach behind your back and put them in your pockets. Just keep your hands out visible. Everybody enjoy your time seeing the president, taking your photos. That's perfectly fine. But all we ask is that, you know, because we want them to enjoy their experience, but we don't want them, you know, making a quick movement like this. And that's going to obviously make us react. So uh, and they usually comply. They don't want to be on the opposite end of that. So, 
Yeah, sadly, I'm on. I'm old enough now to remember the uh, barely, but old enough to remember the uh, Reagan assassination attempt. Uh, mm-hmm. And that was that was scary, man. It was scary. It was very scary. You ran home. You watch the news. It's like your parents telling you about uh, Kennedy, which I'm not old enough for. Um, right. Jen Till has a good. Uh, Pete might be. Jen Till has a great idea. Hit that like button, people. Um, Pete Massey. Sir. Um, just bird's eye view again, because I, I let Jim answer this, but not you, I don't think. Um, how wacky is this case to you? I mean, you you study this, you're a professor, you look at other cases. Relative to other cases, where does this uh, fit on the spectrum of insanity? You know, it seems like this woman just took a dive off the deep end. Um, you know, she's living a, a relatively normal life, and then something happens, whether it's by choice or by chemical, and the deep end just opened up and sucked her in. Um, but, you know, to go along with what uh, Jim was saying, there's obviously mental illness with this woman. Um, you know, you don't kill children without, or knowingly, be involved in killing children um, without some sort of mental illness. You don't talk about the zombie. Well, I shouldn't say that. You know, my 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 son watches these Walk uh, Dead kind of shows. So yeah, maybe we do talk about zombies. But you know, the average person doesn't talk about zombies and people being infected by zombies and having to remove the zombies. So there's there's a lot of mental um, illness going on in in this case. Um, Again, uh, without determining or knowing why, you know, but it, it's it's far out. Some people are going to make some good money off some of the books off of this this case. Yeah, and that's why they're careful with jurors. Raul Thomas, the verdict will be televised. STS should carry stream the verdict. Um, the chief technical officer is working on that as we speak, and we're <laughs> going to put out an announcement. So make sure you're following me at podcast STS, and uh, we will let you know. But we will. Uh, have that live as far as I know. Um, Tim, it's hard when you have Tim and Jim. You got to be careful there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Tim from Shivani, who thinks that Lori would have survived cross-examination? I mean, and would you salivate at the chance to cross her? What's your definition of survive? Um, <laughs> she has nothing to lose. She could have got up there and just spouted these crazy religious things. Uh, probably wouldn't have hurt her case at all. You might have got indirectly a couple of jurors think she's crazy and nuts on their own, even without a jury instruction. Now they just look like she's just, you know, she's a murderer and weirdo and she allowed it to happen. She's showing no remorse in trial. Why should we show any remorse? Um, She's clearly a horrible person. She apparently had a bad background, loved the Twilight Zone. So what does that tell you? She's used to weird things with the Twilight Zone. That was that. Remember that crazy music with the Twilight Zone? <laughs> um, so that's her. Um, I think in Florida, she would have gotten some mental defense. Certainly, we would have called mental health experts to call and, and testify about her behavior, whether she could have formed the intent, uh, whether she was under the spell of this person that's not on trial, whether she did, didn't do it willingly and knowingly. Um, I mean, that's what I think, but yeah. surviving um, cross-examination is all the degree, you know? 
That's very well put. Um, was not expecting that, but uh, as usual, a smart answer from you. Um, maybe there was nothing to lose. I don't know. Um, Jersey girl, Jennifer Castaldi. I swear if this is another Casey Anthony, I'll be more sick than I already am. Followed right here, right back to back by Brianna. Casey Anthony didn't report her child missing for a month. Uh, Peter, the bigger question here is, um, and again, you study and teach this. How come people get so invested in these cases as a public um, and hyped up? And you can kind of feel the tension at the end of a trial. Um, will she get away with murder? Um, you start to anticipate that. And it, it does turn your stomach a little bit. But why, Peter? I, I think it's a fascination with law enforcement, fascination with death, a fascination, you know, it's out everywhere. You know, at one point it was just on like CBS TV. Now it's on all the cable networks, podcasts, movies, show. It's everywhere related to true crime or even fictional crime. Um, you know, I, I started in this business a little bit more than 40 years ago and it was hot then. It just got hotter during that time. And again, I think a big part of it is thanks to you, Joel, you know, because you're Don't blame out, me. <laughs> no, 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 I'm not blaming you. I'm, 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 I'm getting accolades that I, I, because you're out there and you're putting this information out there. We have people like a Sarah who, you know, is, is sucked into this because it's real. Yeah. It's life. It's um, fascinating. It's, um, you know, chess, but by using different kinds of pieces in other people. Um, it's yeah. figuring out the jigsaw puzzles. You know, it's all of these people out there that have that inquisitive mind that now have an outlet. Yeah, and it's, um, you know, truth is stranger than fiction. When you started 40 mm -hmm. years ago, uh, the show Cops was probably just debuting, but there was no real reality TV now it's all about reality, and I think that's a, that's a great point. I think that's why people um, are so uh, invested in it. Uh, Tim, to you, and then we'll get back to Jim. Uh, Sarah says, Chad made me do it. That's all I can think of, and that's a terrible defense. But I can think of something else. Why the hell wouldn't they just blame this guy, Alex Cox, the brother of Lori Vallow, whose phone shows up at every crime scene, and he died of natural causes? Uh, why wouldn't they just come out there and say, look, um, her brother was a horrible person. Uh, he was really the mentally ill one. He had, there's digital forensic evidence putting him at these mm -hmm. crime scenes. It wasn't our client. It was her brother. Uh, don't, you know, don't mix up the fact that they are brother. I sound like Tim Jansen now. I'm trying to be Tim Jansen, but Tim, what about that? Why didn't <laughs> no, they do it? You'd be my associate. Yes, please. Uh, that's please. a plan B defense. Our guys didn't do it. Look at this person. That digital evidence is pretty strong. Who was at the crime scene? Who was at the murder scene of each one? The brother. Who's not available to come in and say, I didn't do it? The brother. Um, pretty good. You're learning. We'll give you an, a bachelor's Tim. degree in criminal defense. I study, Tim. I, I should go back to law school. I would love it, actually. I would, I would enjoy it if I could do it now. And only if I could work from Tim Jansen. And only if I could do it remotely, Tim. I have. But you know, Joel, people, <laughs> love, people love trials. They love murder things. People come up to me all the time and, and talk about cases, and they love hearing stories about cases. 
they're not sure if what they see on TV is real, which is not. They don't solve the crime in an hour. They don't get the DNA in an hour. FBI doesn't identify the guy from a picture 100 yards away. And no, here he is. He's in this car. We got a tracking device. And here we got him. That doesn't happen that way. And Jim will tell you that and Pete will tell you that. It does not happen that way. Yeah. And like the Markel case did not happen that way. It took some excellent FBI investigation to find those murderers. And a lot of it is uh, super tedious. It took a couple of years yep. just to track those guys down. Uh, KCL, our friend from uh, Salt Lake City, the reporters in the courtroom say that this is an astute jury. I sure hope so. Um, and then we've got Australia in the house just to keep things balanced here. Uh, we'll spend a little uh, last chunk of time talking about some of the testimony that always takes me this long to actually get to. Uh, Jim Rathman, we hear about the James and Elena story today uh, from FBI analyst Nicole Heidman. She took the stand. Uh, we are told about the start of the James and Elena story uh, that is between Chad and Lori from July 21st, 2019. Chad went by James. Lori went by Elena. And it begins with James and Elena visiting the temple and then returning to a hotel room for, quote unquote, additional romance on the couch. They calm their nerves enough to give each other a blessing. As James placed his hands on her head, he, we're getting to the storm in a little while, he connected with Elena's true internal self. And it goes on and on. He knew he was in the presence of an exalted goddess who had returned to earth to perform a special mission. Uh, Jim, <laughs> let's say you were working the rope line for President Obama and a man or woman came up and told you, hi, my name is Chad, but I really go by James and my wife is an excited God. Um, what do you make of this? How do you, how do you even read this as, as, as yeah. a human observer? Yeah. You're not staying in the front of the line with the president coming. I'm sorry. <laughs> you're going to have to go somewhere really far away. Um, yeah. I, I, it's crazy. I mean, clearly not my love language. Um, nothing I would say that's for damn sure. Um, <laughs> It's 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 just golly, it's it's delusional, it's funky, it's odd. I don't know. I mean, that must have just been something that they liked, but um, that's nothing I've ever heard before. Yeah, I I, I can't. Um, I'm making Jim uncomfortable. I love it. Um, I I, <laughs> I, I can't. Um, I can't get enough of this though. It's so, Peter, this next one here. So this message. Uh, is from Lori to Chad, who she's now calling Bubby, um, which is funny because that's like a Yiddish name for a yeah. grandmother. So that's kind of funny, right? But uh, yeah. she's, she says to him, that is pretty incredible with fire emoji, fire emoji, fire emoji, fire emoji. And she writes, the fire is definitely burning. I miss you way too much. You have to stop or I might explode. Um, and then it goes on the intensity of each encounter in my mind, one greater than the last fire emoji, fire emoji, especially this last one. I've never loved you more. It just keeps growing. I mean, I'd understand it. Maybe. I mean, I would, I don't know what I could do to my children, ground them. I could understand it in middle school or high school, but these are, uh, adults in their forties and fifties. I mean, again, you're an investigator you're in an interview room and they start to tell you this, what are you thinking? How do you even begin to analyze or break these people down in any sort of, with any sort of logic? Well, I think the first thing is, and I'm being facetious, is like 
on Saturday Night Live, you try to keep the the laugh not going out. Um, but look, you know, we're making fun of this. But if you think about it, you know, okay, so they're forty something year old people that have a love affection or a love affair with one another. You know, I I don't know if this is really much of anything, really, other than you know, just lovebirds talking love talk. Um, now, that being said, you know, there's people out there, people listening who've done it. It's just that we haven't been, ours hasn't been made public and we can't look at it and, and have fun with it um, like this. But um, there's no doubt the two of them had a major connection. Um, I guess they had a great physical connection. <laughs> it was. Um... Pretty arrested development, though, I would have to say. Uh, although people say wacky things to each other, so who knows? Um, <laughs> maybe, maybe, I'm, maybe I'm being too harsh. Who knows? Um, Helene uh, O'Cleary, Jim, not Tim. I was shocked that they were planning uh, to kill six more people. I don't know if I've heard that. All connected to the family. I guess my question to you, uh, Jim, would they have continued to kill knowing what you know? I think they would have, um, you know, uh, was one of the comments I wanted to make in the beginning of the show is that, you know, if you're a family you're connected to Lori and, and Chad, count your blessings that you're still alive, because it seems like if you had knowledge of what they were doing or if you had any type of involvement, you were next. Um, so, uh, you know, I think they would have kept going if anybody had any ties to this so they could basically kill everybody off. I mean, a dead person can't talk. So uh, I think they would have kept going until they eventually got cleared and were able to go live their life in Hawaii, wherever they were going, um, you know, the ends of the universe, whatever it is that they were doing. Um, and Jim, what about Alex Cox? He died of quote unquote natural causes. They cremated yeah. him so they couldn't, you couldn't even exhume his body, but no. he was a young guy, you know, they, they say, I think he's what he had died from was some sort of pulmonary issue, a bilateral pulmonary something. I think it starts with DVTs in your, in your veins and it, make some sort of embolism in your, in your lung or something along those lines. So yeah, that would be considered a, a natural way to, to pass, I guess. But um, I don't believe whatsoever. Um, the M3 was cremated right away. So you cannot go ahead and determine what the cause of death was just like what they had to do with Tammy. Um, so they covered the tracks there. Uh, Tim, this is interesting to me. Catherine uh, says, do you think all the people the defense could have called as witnesses think she's guilty. Have you ever run into a situation where you try to get an expert witness on a case and it's a weird thing because you know that they think that your client is guilty? Um, how do you work around that? Does that happen? Well, let me tell you what happens. Your investigator goes out there and talks to witnesses. And if the witness is going to be favorable, oh, we'd like to get an affidavit. If the witness is unfavorable, thank you very much. We won't need you. <laughs> Same thing kind of happens with an expert. You hire an expert. I tell my experts, okay, call me before you do a report. Call me before you do the report. Or I'm not paying you. And they, they'll call you and they'll tell you if it's a good report or a bad report. If it's a good report, give me the report. If it's a bad report, thanks. We're not going to need you, Doc. We're going a different way. Um, so you do have problems like that. All the time you're running down witnesses. Some are favorable. Some have one favorable piece. Some have not so great pieces. 
No one wants to be a witness. Trust me. Now, the experts want to be witnesses because they get paid. But the regular person on the street does not want to be a witness if they're not invested either with a defendant. They don't want to be part of it because they subject themselves to a deposition in Florida, uh, investigation, then they got to take time off from work, and they got to come in and testify in an open courtroom. Sometimes you can't find witnesses, but you can screen witnesses, experts, um, so that you don't do the because once you get a report and it's not favorable, you're obligated to turn that over to the state. And if you get an expert that says something contrary to what your expert's going to say, you have to turn that over to the state. So you're you're working now for the state, and that's not a good thing to be doing. And North Carolina horse lover, right back to you, Tim. How unusual is it for a defense team not to present a case in chief for their client? Does this happen often? Uh, I would say probably 75% of the time, That's especially in, in federal court, they rely mostly on cross-examination and argue they haven't proven the case. Uh, and remember, in federal court, they pick and choose their cases they take. They're usually pretty strong cases. In state court, they're stuck with if an officer arrests somebody, they charge them, then it's going to go to trial. They have to try it or drop it. And so even on bad cases, they'll take it to trial to give, they'll say, well, we tried. They don't really do that in federal court. Jersey Jen, thank you, Joel, for all the eye candy. You're welcome. Uh, Tim, a quick what? another one for you. Uh, they will appeal, Nightwood says. Uh, is that expected? I mean, everyone appeals now, right? Everyone appeals. When you lose your trial, you go out to the cameras. Uh, we're very disappointed in the verdict, and we're going to file an appeal. <laughs> if you don't say that, then you're not doing your client a service. And, Tim, one more. I lied. Yeah. STS, will there be any benefit to Chad at his trial being married to Lori still? Some people said uh, his defense lawyer, John Pryor, sh Pryor, should tell him to get an expedited divorce. But uh, is there any advantage to being married to her at this point? The only benefit being married is that the communications and only communications during the marriage are protected. Now, some people won't make the wife testify against the husband, but they can. And I, the example we were given in law school, Betty's at home. Husband comes running in with the fireplace, comes running in with the bloody shirt. He throws the bloody shirt into the fireplace. The police come and they say, what did you see? I saw my husband throw a bloody shirt in the fireplace. That's not protected. That's not communication. She would have to testify. Now, if he said, I just shot a man, then that would be protected. So that's communications. Another person that should go to law school, if she's not already an attorney, KCL, she writes, no automatic appeal. It must be filed. Lori will file appeals. I'm certain of it. Uh, one, on the grounds of her speedy trial rights being violated. Two, on all the 404B character evidence the judge allowed. Do you agree with that, Tim? Uh, I do. 404B is one of those areas that can get a reversal. Um, the speedy trial, as long as the judge tries to comply, reasonably apply or complies with that, it'll be denied. But the 404B could cause an, uh, a retrial if they felt that that should not have come in and it tainted her right for a fair trial. And we go back to the Elena story here, the James and Elena story. Uh, at 925 in the courtroom today, uh, this FBI agent's going through it and says, uh, Chad says to Lori, I completely agree. We were definitely in new territory in your bedroom. 
Elena's magic hand has gripped the storm, barely able to breathe as intense waves wash over them. Jim? <laughs> what can you say about Jim? What can you say about the storm? I just I'm glad to- you called Jim. I'm sure there wasn't much of a storm, and I'm sure she was burning uh, for excitement. I'm sure it was a different kind of burn. I'm just going to leave it at that. <laughs> you know, it, it, it sounds like he missed his calling that he should have been uh, a Playboy forum writer or an erotic novel writer. Yeah, he was yeah. writing like uh, about all these dark demons. He should have been, uh, I don't know. Right. Yeah, crazy, <laughs> crazy. Um, hey, 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 Joel, I do have I do have one comment to make and, and a good point. I saw one of your uh, one of the guests that said here. I believe it's Brenda Redmond, and she makes a very good point because we don't know exactly what caused the brother, Mister Cox, to pass away of some sort of pulmonary issue at a younger age, like he did, right? But she made the comment of, "What if they pushed oxygen into his veins?" Which I'm not a medical doctor by any means, but um, it. it could cause some sort of pulmonary reaction anyway. I don't think it would be the same exact thing, but it's, yeah. it's an interesting theory. People have said that they should have looked uh, for needle marks between his toes. Um, nothing surprised me. That guy looked in perfectly good shape um, when he shot and killed Charles Vallow, uh, which wasn't long before. Something's not adding up. Uh, the smell test uh, doesn't really pass. None of this passes a smell test, mm-hmm. especially not the storm. Um, Jim, back to you on this one. Uh, Lori will not be very popular in prison. Convicts don't like child murders. I know you haven't spent time in prison, Jim, but you put people there. Um, what do you think her fate is like? Because uh, child killers are among the most despised uh, behind bars. Yeah, child killers, child rapists. Look, you got to keep in mind a lot of the people that are in, in prison have had some sort of childhood trauma. Uh, whether they were abused by by a parent, a sibling, or somebody, so uh, you know they do not like child predators. They do not like child killers. So I think she's going to have a very rough time when she gets to prison. And I think they're you know uh, she's going to have a very rough time. I'll just put it that way. They may end up putting her in seg. Yeah, and so yeah, how long can they keep her in there, Peter? I have honestly no idea. Um, you know. Well, you got somebody like Sirhan who's been in segregation his entire time. So to her, and I, again, I don't know what the, the laws are like, you, you, you know, up there or down in Arizona when she gets down to Arizona. Yeah. Um, someone's asking about the death penalty in Arizona. That is, as far as I know, could be on the table. Not a guarantee yet, but they do have it in Arizona. Uh, Bella Michelle, all the Jersey girls come out. I love it. Hit that like button, please. Thank you, Bella Michelle. I appreciate that. Um, I hit it because I saw it in New Jersey. I didn't see the like part, but I like that even more. So thank you. Um, someone says Melanie uh, Pulowski is the next. Lori Valadebel. Um, This is interesting. From Catherine Regier in Hawaii, Tim. And then we'll start to wrap it up. But Catherine says... Tim, could you comment on why so many prosecutors end up becoming defense attorneys? I'll tell you why. Look at Tim's mahogany wood behind him. That ain't cheap. <laughs> Tim? Um, well, a lot of young lawyers start off as prosecutors. They get the experience. They learn how to try a case, how to defend the case. And then they have a family. And then their family and they want to educate their kids. So they don't want to prosecute anymore. So they 
open a practice and start doing defense work and then they get good at it. And um, it's more challenging. Prosecutors have more power, uh, but defense lawyers have more responsibility because you're not just representing the defendant, you represent the family. Every day you have an ethical dilemma. Every day the person comes in, puts you in an ethical dilemma. Sometimes lawyers don't do the right thing. Some do. Um, and most prosecutors know the lawyers that are on each side. So, and there's some prosecutors that will never become a uh, defense lawyer. I mean, they're, they're in it for life. You know who they are. A lot of federal prosecutors are that way. Um, a lot of federal prosecutors go to defense because it can be very financially lucrative. No doubt about it. And uh, Tim, right back at you here, KCL, I just saw this, that sentencing might not occur for two to three months if Lori's found guilty. Uh, why so long? Why, why would they wait so long to sentence? Um, if you normally have a mandatory life sentence, they can do the sentencing right there in that day. Um, unless they want to have the family come in and speak to the judge so the family can be heard, uh, like they think they did in the Murdoch trial. Remember, they, they continued that for a little bit. But normally, if you got a mandatory life sentence, I've, I've been in a case where the judge said, we're going to do sentencing right now. Uh, it was a capital sexual battery. The judge did it 30 minutes later, and he was serving life sentence. Wow. A lot um, for the victims. For the victims. Tim, I know this is not the case with you, but Mercina Lady says, Jim Archibald, the defense attorney, has the most monotone and boring voice. Um can you tell right away who's going to be a good def defense attorney and who's not? I mean, you've got to have some, uh, as they say in French, uh, je ne sais quoi, some, some like intangible action, right? I mean, you've got to go in there and uh, you've got to fight and and hype up the jurors to believe uh, in, in your client, right? You have to have courtroom presence. Um, you could have a monotone, boring lawyer argue the legal motions for the court. But if you're trying a case and you want 12 or six persons to, to vote your side and listen to you, you better be able to convince them or at least sell yourself and sell your client. Otherwise, you're not going to be very effective at all. Uh, Gina Federson says the jury is going to take one minute to give their guilty verdict. She's pure <laughs> evil. We'll, we'll see if that, in fact, happens. One last bit of um, investigative work uh, that we uh, heard testimony about today was actually the investigator for the Idaho Attorney General. Uh, this person's name is Nicholas Edwards. And uh, Jim Rathman, to you, there was an attempted shooting of Tammy Daybell, Chad's wife, on October 9th, 2019. She actually died 10 days later. Um, he reviewed these accounts, and guess what? Uh, the account, an email account that had some information about this was linked to Alex Cox, and then went to look at his uh, phone, his device, and it visited something called the Sportsman Warehouse on the day of the attempted shooting. Again, uh, Jim, I know you're not an attorney, but why are they not just putting this on the dead guy who is all over all these crime scenes? What, what's your take on that? I don't know why they, they didn't. I think they should have. Uh, it would have been a much smarter move for them, but they didn't do it. And I'm, I'm actually... Uh, kind of grateful they didn't do it because, you know, obviously Lori and Chad had so much to do with this. So um, I don't know why they didn't do it. I really don't. That's an, it's makes no sense to me. Uh, Peter Massey, he started his career 40 years ago. He was a detective in Hamden, Connecticut. Uh, he retired in July, 2003 after more than 20 years there. 
Uh, he worked a little bit at the Henry C. Lee, Lee Institute of Forensic Science. So we've had the actual Henry C. Lee on. You can look for that episode. He is an interesting man. And uh, he's currently Peter, not Henry Lee, but Peter is a professor of instruction at the University of South Florida at St. Petersburg. Um, Peter, um, old lady Snoop, how does the jury reasonably look at this, her, and not consider that mental illness is involved? Are they supposed to pretend that's not possible? They're going to be instructed not to weigh that at all. But um, about that, I mean, just separating like what the judge is telling you from the reality of because I'm in there and I'm saying, wow, this woman is batshit crazy and I'm about to sentence her to life. But uh, how do you how do you negotiate that if you're a juror? Well, as being rejected on a jury pool three times, um, never sitting, I, I can't speak to it directly. But look. Being involved in conversations with people, how do you not consider it? Even though you're told don't, it's still already, it's almost like, Tim, where you give something and the judge says, jury, disregard that. Well, how do you disregard something you've already heard? They you don't. Heard they don't. They don't. And it's the same thing here. Look, do I know what goes on in the jury room? No. But you know they're going to talk about that shit crazy or the zombies coming down or rockets going off in the bedroom or whatever the heck is going on. But, uh, you know, you can't separate it up. Yeah. But on the legal side, as you guys said, they can't apply it to any of their decisions. Uh, someone giving me credit for the title of the video, which I already forget, but the word storm is in there. I know. But, uh, the Chad man storm. Chad Storm? I forget what I'll have to go look at it. I already forget. But um, the man in the American flag pocket square served his country well. He is uh, Jim Rathman. He's a graduate of the Federal Law Enforcement and United States Secret Service Academies. He protected President Barack Obama and family, as well as Vice President Joe Biden and numerous other presidents and prime ministers. He's the guy that you watch on all the TV shows, but he is the real version of that. And prior to the Secret Service, he was a police officer in Louisiana. He was also a football player, star football player in college at LSU, which is no small feat. And I'm finding out that the skills run in the family. And uh, he is a soldier as well. Um, so uh, Jim might be able to retire very soon, thanks to his son being an extraordinary baseball player. I'm not jealous at all, but I am. But my <laughs> three-year-old who's turning four in five days better get it together. I'm going to have to speak to Jim Rathman and get this kid on the Major League Baseball track so I can retire soon, too. Although I love doing this. Um, Jim, <laughs> Tracy Dale says, I honestly didn't think her attorneys could talk Lori out of testifying. I'm betting she really wanted to testify. All eyes on her. People describe her as a narcissist. Do you think she wanted to have that last moment of uh, intense scrutiny and uh, the world's eyes on her and is uh, annoyed that she's got to go down quietly right now? I I'm pretty sure she's annoyed. She probably thinks she's the smartest person in the room, much like Alec Murdoch thought he was the smartest person in the room, too, when he was up there giving his testimony. Um, I don't think she testifies. I think she's she's going to stay quiet on this, but whether she testifies or not, she's going to be found guilty pretty quick, which is my opinion. And I would have to agree with that. 
He has the amazing mahogany wood. He is famed Tallahassee defense attorney R. Timothy Jansen. He's a partner in the firm that bears his name, Jansen and Davis. He's covered every sort of civil, administrative, and criminal case you can think of. Also spending five years as a federal prosecutor. Uh, Tim, you're overarching. Big thoughts about what we saw today and uh, how it all ends. I think it's it's going to end like we all are predicting here. Um, I saw a comment by someone said that the lawyers did what the court-appointed lawyers did was make sure she got a, a fair trial. They're going to do nothing more, nothing less. And they might have made a decision that the best thing is to do nothing. Um, you know, a lot of people do that. Best decision is no decision. But they're going to argue and hope they have a little better energy in their argument than they did in the trial. Otherwise, it's going to be a really slam dunk. And it'd be curious to see if they argue the law or they argue the facts or if they stick with reasonable doubt. Those are the three areas most defense lawyers stick to. If the law is on your side, you argue the law. If the facts are on your side, you argue the facts. If both are against you, then you argue reasonable doubt. Talk about the, all the different standards of burdens of proof. Uh, and you can tell how they feel about their case, which argument they're making. They may make a combination of all three. Um, but I, I don't think this is a rocket scientist. I think that the jurors take their, 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 their oath pretty serious. It's a murder case. They know it. They've seen the pictures. They've seen the children. And, and they're going to give a verdict, and it's going to be, I believe, guilty on all counts. Uh, Roxanne A. says, no storm talk. It's so much fun, though. Uh, someone else said that Chad let out his little shrimp. I saw that comment. Uh, this comment here, squeaky wheel. Anybody have any idea why Lori was acting giddy and happy just before the defense rested today? Was it because she found out she wasn't going to have to testify? Did Archibald tell her something? I'll tell you why, because she's not all there. Um, and you can bet that the jurors are watching that. Uh, we've got Holland watching, too. Love that. Uh, quick programming note. We're going to be on this, obviously, Throughout the week, we will take the verdict live. As soon as uh, I can confirm that with the chief technical officer, I will let you know. Uh, as you can tell, we have the best guests in true crime. It's not a tagline. It's reality. And you're saying why right now. Uh, I want to be Tim, Jim, and Peter when I grow up. Uh, so we'll see if that happens. But we will do a live show tomorrow night, 7 p.m. Eastern time. And then Thursday, I'm going to ask the great Tim Jansen to come back so we could have a verdict. I'm going to get an all-star panel of our legal minds uh, for that show uh, to come back on for the verdict uh, if he is willing to do that. And we'll get Jim and Peter back soon enough. And then Friday, 12.30 p.m. Eastern time, it is Great Scott. Time for your true crime, Phil, with Phil Waters and Scott Duffy. Until then, love you, America. Love you, Tallahassee. Love you, Louisiana. And love you, Connecticut, Tampa, and everywhere in between, and Australia and Austria. It's Ram season, which means it's time to serve with Ram 1500, Ram 3500, and Ram TRX. Hurry in now for great deals on the trucks that are built to serve. Right now during Ram season, get 10% below MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Ram 1500 Laramie. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. Contact dealer for details. Take retail delivery by 531-23.
Final seconds of the game. A chance to score and the chance has gone begging. If your business's commerce platform keeps missing the target on golden opportunities, get the MVP you deserve. Get Shopify. (coughs) Shopify is the commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. Whether you're a garage entrepreneur or IPO ready, Shopify is the only tool that you need to start, run, and grow your business without the struggle. Shopify puts you in control of every sales channel. So whether you're selling signed football boots from Shopify's in-person POS system, or you're vending vintage shirts on Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform, you are covered. And once you've reached your audience, Shopify has the internet's best converting checkout to help you turn them from browsers to buyers. What I love about Shopify is how, no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US. And Shopify is truly a global force, powering Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across over 170 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash ranks, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com forward slash ranks to take your business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash ranks.